This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 32, The Battle of Mount Vesuvius. Despite many people knowing of Spartacus, due to his story being an inspirational heroic underdog story which tends to garner a lot of interest from many, the Battle of Mount Vesuvius is not always the first thing that comes to mind when you mention Mount Vesuvius, due to an event which happened in the following century, which will be covered in a future episode. Mount Vesuvius overlooks the Gulf of Naples and it's only between 100 and 150 miles down the west coast of the Italian peninsula from Rome. But despite the fact that there is only a short distance between Rome and the area around Naples, there is definitely a distinction between northern and southern Italian culture between these two areas and this is ingrained in the Italian peninsula's history and the Roman period is no exception to this observation. Back in the Roman period the most notable city of this area was not Naples but instead Capua. It is difficult to trace the history of Capua back from the Roman period with any degree of confidence. We can refer back to episode 29 regarding the Battle of Cannae, which happened a couple of centuries previous to today's episode's battle. Cannae is roughly across the other side of the Italian peninsula from Mount Vesuvius in the east. We learned during that episode that there was a migration of people from across the Adriatic Sea who came to be referred to as Yapidians and brought their Mesapic languages with them. They pushed those indigenous Italic language speakers from these lands. So this takes us back to a time early in the first millennium BCE when it was likely that all the lands nearer to the south of the Italian peninsula were dominated by Italic language speakers and experts suggest that the people who lived round Mount Vesuvius would have spoken a language called Oscan, an Italic language and therefore one of the Indo-European language family. However, there was another culture that had arrived in the region at the beginning of the first millennium BCE and we discussed this back in episode 9. They were the Eubeans from the Greek island of Euboea and they were settling the islands around the Gulf of Naples. There is very little evidence of much in the way of Greek colonisation before the Eubeans. So this was very early in the first millennium BCE. These migrants established the city of Cumi 
on the Italian mainland, which prospered as one of the most northern cities of the Greek colonies of the Italian peninsula, leading to the Romans referring to the lands in the south as Magna Grecia. As the centuries rolled by, the next dominant race of the west coast were the Etruscans, fundamentally based to the north of the city of Rome, but due to Rome being a small city, it was somewhat absorbed by the Etruscan southward expansion, which brought the Etruscans in contact with the Eubeans in Cumi. There was a lot of tension between the Greeks and the Etruscans in this area and battles took place, but also some historians will see the Eubean contact with the Etruscans as a possible link which connects the migration of the Greek alphabet to Etruria, where the Etruscan alphabet would evolve, and then in turn the Romans would discover this new writing style and develop the modern Latin alphabet that the Western world uses today. However, Romans would have had their own interactions with the city of Cumae. The last king of Rome, Tarquin the Proud, was exiled from his throne and his home in the city of Rome and would head to Cumae in exile. Tarquin would actually end up in a position of power in Cumae, overthrowing the tyrant ruler Aristodemus. One group of people from this area of the peninsula who started rising to significance were the Samnites. The Samnites are linked to the somewhat indigenous Oscan speakers who we spoke of earlier. During the 5th century BCE, we know that the significant cities of Capua and Neapolis, which we know today as Naples, had definitely been established. The Samnites invaded the city of Cumae and expelled the Greeks, some of which went to Neapolis. This would last until the expanding Romans came into conflict with the Samnites in the 4th century BCE and something that we spoke about back in episode 26. The Roman Republic the Roman Republic had started as a kingdom, although the period of the monarchy from the 8th century to the 6th century BCE is only documented retrospectively by later writers, so we don't really know how much of the story is actually true or not. However, we mentioned that the last king of Rome, the highly controversial Tarquin the Proud, actually left Rome for the lands of Campania, where he was exiled by the Roman Senate and went to the Euboean Greek colony of Cumae. However, Rome itself would then become a republic and begin its own development, especially after the city was sacked by Gallic Celts in 390 BCE. Later in the 4th century BCE, the Romans decided that expansion was the best way to combat another potential attack, but this would upset many of the Latin societies around the city of Rome. So when the conflict between the Romans and the Samnites escalated during this century, the Latin League had no interest in supporting the Romans. So the Romans were frequently warring with their neighbours in the later years of the 4th century BCE, including defeating the Latin League and effectively gaining control over many of the cities of the League itself. 
This would enable Rome to bolster its position in their ongoing conflicts with the Samnites. However, it wasn't all one-sided between the Romans and the Samnites. The Romans did suffer an embarrassing defeat at the Battle of the Caldine Forks near Capua, where the Samnites entrapped and humiliated the Roman army. After the turn of the 3rd century BCE, the Roman army employed a new level of aggression against the Samnites to turn their fortunes around. Thanks to some ruthless advances on the battlefield, the Romans were able to swing the momentum in favour of themselves, eventually defeating the Samnites and annexing their lands. The Romans were now in control of the lands of Campania, which included the cities of Capua, Beneventum and Neapolis. The aftermath of the Samnite Wars was the start of the Pyrrhic Wars, in which King Pyrrhus of Epirus threatened these new lands of the Romans, but the Romans were able to resist the Epirates' invasion and Pyrrhus would eventually return home, prompting the Romans to annex the entire south of the Italian peninsula in a bid to prevent anybody else from landing on the peninsula. This protection of the peninsula led to the Romans trying to secure the waters between the peninsula and the island of Sicily, which brought them into conflict with the Carthaginians who were already on Sicily. This would escalate into the Punic Wars, which we followed closely during episodes 27 and 28. The Romans would defeat the Carthaginians on Sicily and effectively gain control of the island. This would force the Carthaginians to build a power base on the Iberian Peninsula in order to gain some wealth. But tensions grew between Carthage and Rome again before the Carthaginian commander Hannibal Barca would cross the Alps and invade the Roman Republic from the north. After Hannibal scored a famous victory at Cannae, the city of Capua would support the Carthaginians, but it appears that Neapolis remained loyal to Rome, so the region's loyalties were split. The Romans would make the Capuans pay for their rebellious actions, and ultimately Hannibal was forced to flee back to Carthage before the Romans eventually destroyed Carthage and ended the Punic Wars. The Romans then concentrated on foreign expansion by building a Mediterranean imperial area of influence. However, things were still very early in the development of Roman society on the Italian peninsula and the people of the peninsula were still very ethnically diverse with many different cultures speaking many different languages. Many of those of a different culture to the Romans were not considered to be full Roman citizens and therefore did not enjoy the same benefits that a full Roman citizen might expect to receive. Roman slavery. So it's important to remind ourselves of the structure of the class-based society in the Roman Republic so that we can better understand how the population of Rome viewed themselves. Much of your fortune in the classical world was based by which family you were born into. If you were lucky enough to be born into an aristocratic family, you would be an aristocrat and enjoy the benefits of everything that came with being an aristocrat, with full voting rights 
and an inheritance of land and wealth. There was a very distinct difference between the aristocratic families and all other Roman citizens, and there was a definite desire by the aristocracy to protect their social privileges, but due to the fact that the aristocracy, despite holding much of the wealth, was such a minority of the entire population, once the non-aristocratic citizens, otherwise known as the plebeians, decided to stand up for their rights, the aristocracy, otherwise known as the patricians, had no option but to make concessions, or risk losing the loyalty of the plebeians completely. The patricians and the plebeians always struggled to find a political and social balance within the Roman Republic, particularly in the early years, which were the 5th and 4th centuries BCE. However, it is important to understand that despite the plebeians not being the aristocrats, they were still citizens, and some of them were influential and wealthy. So there was a huge diversity within the plebeian class. You could indeed be a rich plebeian, and you could likewise be not so rich. And this could depend on what you did for a living, or how well your business was performing, of course. The class beneath the plebeians was the slave class. Slavery is something that goes hand in hand with human history. Some firmly believe that slavery is something that has existed alongside civilised human history since the Neolithic Revolution. Certainly in the lands of the European classical cultures, there is record of slavery going back to the Mycenaean Greeks, and one of the more famous stories of a slave class in classical antiquity is the story of the Mycenaean helots under the rule of the Spartans, something that we first introduced back in episode 7 about the Athenians. Slavery in Roman culture became something of a necessity to ensure that the patricians and the plebeians could exploit the wealth of their expanding society. By conquering new lands, the Romans could enslave the populations to help the Roman citizens to protect and expand their own wealth. Certainly at the end of episode 28 about the Punic Wars, we learned about how the Romans captured 50,000 Carthaginians and took them back to Italian lands for a life of slavery. It is speculated that possibly as much as 25% of the entire Roman population could have belonged to the slave class at one point. If you were a slave, you could have had a bad life, but also depending on who your master was, you could have had a reasonably comfortable life. It may have suited you to have been a slave, where you simply work all day without any responsibilities and at the end of the day be fed and clothed and sleep comfortably each night. You may well have been able to live with your family all enslaved together or working for the same citizen and being treated well. Slavery may not have necessarily meant a bad life. However, of course, there was another reality. Slaves would have been treated worse than animals by some masters, and you couldn't pick your master. If you were a captured foreigner from a land recently conquered by the Romans, you may have been transported back to Rome, where you would have been taken to a marketplace 
and stripped down in front of wealthy citizens who could assess your physical condition and make a bid to be your master. The more physically fit you were, the more desirable you were and the higher price you could fetch. Likewise, if you had a skill, you would be valued. If you had intelligence, you might be a tutor to the children of your master. You may have had a craft which enabled you to create goods that could be sold to bring extra income into your master's household, benefiting everyone living under his roof. Female slaves could have made excellent company for the wives of Roman citizens, helping them to cook or tend the children. Some slaves would have been skilled musicians capable of providing entertainment. Others would have been physically intimidating and the perfect protector of property, or even a very able bodyguard. However, the attribute of being physically able and the Roman desires of being entertained also led to another purpose for slaves. Some slaves may have been sold to owners who would be responsible for providing entertainment at Roman theatres. Romans would be excited to see two physically impressive slaves in active combat with each other, or even in active combat with animals. Some slaves would be trained so that the drama of watching them complete would be exhilarating for the audience. The best entertainment would involve the slaves wearing an armoured outfit and being trained to use a steel sword called a gladius, and therefore these experts would be called gladiators. Some gladiators would achieve notoriety for their ability to entertain crowds, becoming the desired and admired competitor of the day, before the crowds returned home and the gladiator would have to return to his slave encampment for a life of denied rights and potential humiliation before being called upon again to enter the arena to the adulation of the adoring crowd, which in reality may not have been enough to prevent the gladiator's own death in the spirit of this public spectacle of combat. Spartacus it is likely that the slave named Spartacus was once paraded in a marketplace as a tall, young, physically fit captive from the Roman-acquired lands in Thrace, modern-day Bulgaria. We shouldn't be too surprised to hear that we know nothing of Spartacus's background, as he was just a slave. There would have been no reason for Roman scribes to have had any interest in him as an individual aside from what entertainment he could provide them with. Plutarch, writing well after the lifetime of Spartacus, would describe Spartacus as an intelligent and cultured man. When we look at what Spartacus achieved, then this analysis of him makes perfect sense. Some sources actually claim that he did, in fact, serve as a Roman soldier at some point during his lifetime. What we can probably be comfortable with is the fact that Spartacus was a gladiator at some point during his lifetime and that Spartacus was a student held captive at a gladiator school around the city of Capua. We can't be sure what the catalyst was to the events that would lead to Spartacus 
becoming the ringleader for slave revolt. But we do know that a number of gladiators, slaves and former gladiators would have been attracted to the prospect of breaking free from the shackles of a life of slavery, maybe believing that there was a route back to the freedom that may have once been enjoyed by Spartacus back home in Thrace. We cannot even be sure if Spartacus was the one who instigated the entire revolt in the first place, or whether he was just an elected leader by a group of around 70 revolters. What we can probably be sure of is that they mob-handedly forced their way out of the gladiator school, taking a lot of equipment and weapons with them. They would have had to have fought their way out of imprisonment, and it appears that they fled to Mount Vesuvius, where they would have been able to view their surroundings. Gaius Claudius Glaber Glaber was a plebeian praetor. The Roman praetors were important members of the Roman political system who would have led army units and acted as magistrates. Glaber is another one of those historical characters whose lifetime escaped the interest of contemporary scribes with very little known about his background and achievements. What we do know about Glaber is that he was the man commissioned with sorting out the slave rebellion once the Roman Senate had caught wind of what had happened at the gladiator school in Capua. Naturally, as we have seen in the past, whenever a revolutionary group attempt to take control of the high ground, such as when the Chelonians had taken control of the Acropolis in Athens during the 7th century BCE, the response would often be to besiege the promontory. And so Glaber was then tasked with besieging Mount Vesuvius in order to starve out Spartacus's revolutionaries. Prelude to the Battle The journey from Capua to Mount Vesuvius for Spartacus and the gladiator school slaves who numbered less than a hundred would have likely encountered challenges along the way with local Roman police being responsible for dealing with the recapture of these men. However, all along the way the revolutionaries would have inspired more and more members of the slave class to break away from their masters and join the rebellion. Not only were Spartacus's men able to overcome the pursuit of the local police, but they were also strengthening their numbers and on a very significant level. Hundreds of slaves rallied to the cause and this may have taken the number of slaves in the rebellion into the thousands, although some texts state that it went into the tens of thousands. When news had got back to Rome that the local police had been outfoxed by Spartacus, this is when Glaber, one of the eight Roman praetors, was commissioned to deal with the problem, as he and his army would have been the most ready for commission with other units tied up with alternative affairs elsewhere in the Roman imperial landscape. At the time, the Romans would not have regarded the slave revolt as anything too major. One of those things that was a nuisance, but something that was not necessarily a huge surprise within the social dynamics. Glaber's remit would have probably been very simple. Get yourself and your men down there. 
The rebels had set up camp on Mount Vesuvius, so starved them out. So Glaber would have set up camp at the base of the volcano at the point of access to the higher grounds, so there was now no way down for the slaves. The Battle of Mount Vesuvius With Spartacus and his slave army trapped on Mount Vesuvius, and Glaber with his concession of 3,000 men blocking the only route down from the volcano, Spartacus and his mixture of foreign slaves from Greek and Celtic lands, among others, were forced into making a decision. They had to descend from Mount Vesuvius somehow, or starve. So the slaves started utilising the wild vines growing on Vesuvius and weaving them into long ropes. Then one night, while the Romans were sleeping in their leather tents in their encampment at the base of Vesuvius, the slave army abseiled down from the volcano using the weaved wild vines and reaching the bottom of the volcano at a point that the Romans could not have expected the slaves to use. The Romans would certainly have not left their encampment unguarded. However, for those who envisaged slaves within the Roman Republic as simply the less able people in society are overlooking the fact that on a practical level the slaves would have been the most able, with slaves being commissioned to carry out menial production tasks and having to learn basic craftsmanship skills. It was probably no problem for the members of the slave army to stealthily approach the Roman sentries on guard at the encampment and silently remove them from the picture. What happened next was entirely predictable. The slave army then overwhelmed the sleepy encampment. A sudden and shocking assault took place on the Romans. Soldiers were slaughtered, weapons were stolen, food was plundered. The Battle of Vesuvius was no battle at all. It was a rout and it was all over. Spartacus had successfully escaped slavery and defeated a Roman army in what must have seemed like the unlikeliest events that could happen within the Roman Republic. Aftermath The Battle of Mount Vesuvius was actually a catalyst for something much bigger. It took place in 73 BCE and it created a bigger problem for the Roman Republic for the next two years. When news got around that a slave army had defeated a Roman army, the hopes of many desperate slaves were raised to the point where many thousands now flocked to the aid of Spartacus's army. Glaber's failure to deal with the problem was now a serious issue, and we have absolutely no idea whether he was killed at the scene or whether he fled to safety. I cannot personally imagine that he would have had any sympathy at all from the Roman Senate for shamefully not dealing with this slave revolt. This would have been a sharp reflection on his perceived capabilities. 
The slave army kept growing and the ongoing feud and conflicts became known as the Third Servile War, otherwise known as the War of Spartacus, or as Plutarch, the Greek author, dubbed it the Gladiator War, as many of the original corps of slaves would have served as gladiators at some point in their lives. The slave army had grown so large that praetors were sent with entire legions to tackle the slave army. The slave army had been trained in close combat skills and Spartacus had the ability to be an inspirational leader who kept this large movement under some sort of control. The slaves were successfully ambushing those Roman legions on more than one occasion. The praetors sent to deal with the problem were not returning home, most likely being killed at the scene alongside their men. Having made the most of the fertile lands around Mount Vesuvius to build an ever-growing slave army, the slave army would begin to move north along the peninsula. There are many different theories regarding what the slave army wanted. Did they want to completely escape the Roman lands altogether, maybe to return to the Celtic and Greek lands from which they came from? Did they want to gather enough people to be able to take on the Romans and potentially overthrow the Republic? Do they want to look for an area of the Republic that they could call their own and secede from the Republic? Or could it be that they wanted to end slavery in the Roman Republic altogether? Personally, I believe that a secession from the Roman Republic seems like the most realistic option but I must admit that I've made this option up myself. We know that the slaves headed north, raiding settlements, but also seemingly acting in various groups with various leaders. There also seemed to be an egalitarian attitude, with Spartacus being painted as a leader without privilege, stating that resources should be shared and that his army's fate would be shared by himself. This attitude famously led to the adulation of the German 19th century socialist revolutionary Karl Marx, describing Spartacus as the most splendid fellow in the whole of ancient history. Curiously, upon reaching the far north of the Italian peninsula and the physical frontier presented by the Alps, which would lead to the wider European lands that the slaves may have recognised as their original home, it appears that a decision was made to head back south again. Maybe the prospect of crossing the Alps was too much, or maybe the change of climate meant that the slaves recognised that the fertility of the land was not as good as when in Campania under the shadow of Vesuvius. When the slaves arrived back in the south, having defended themselves from any and all Roman attacks, they set up camp. Descriptions have been made of a training camp being set up to refine the military abilities of the slave following. If the slaves were farming the land, then travelling merchants would have shown an interest in the surplus and traded metals with the slaves, which could be used to construct weapons. The one thing that the slaves didn't seem to have was any kind of naval capability, and this would ultimately prove to be their Achilles heel. So serious was the threat of the slave movement that the Roman Senate had to now treat this 
as a problem of national importance instead of just a civil annoyance. It would be the experienced and wealthy statesman, Marcus Licinius Crassus, who would be commissioned to deal with the problem next. In 71 BCE, Crassus, who we have mentioned many times already, not least of all for his association with the First Triumvirate during the 50s BCE, was elected as a praetor of the Roman Republic. Crassus would address the issue of the slave movement with a good degree of seriousness. With his large amounts of wealth, he equipped his own army and commissioned his own approach to his army. He famously advocated the Roman military practice of decimation. In the modern sense we use the word decimation to describe a notable destruction of something, but in its original sense it had a very specific meaning. It was a form of military discipline in which units were punished for things like cowardice by having every tenth man beaten to death by the other nine comrades. Grim stuff. The slaves knew that with no naval capability they risked being hemmed in in the fertile south so they had to move northwards to meet Crassus's forces. Despite initial success by the slaves, Crassus enforced his discipline in the Roman army, forcing them to respect the capabilities of the slaves instead of attacking them with blind complacency. This was the key in turning the tables and the slaves were forced to turn south again after the Roman army had started to kill slave soldiers in battle. In turning south, the slaves were hemmed in at the toe of the Italian peninsula. The only route away was across the Strait of Messina and onto the island of Sicily. Although it was a narrow water crossing, it was not navigable without some naval capability, with the strong currents needed to be expertly negotiated. The slaves tried to commission the assistance of pirates to aid their evacuation, but were betrayed and left to their fate. The slaves started panicking. Factions of the slaves started to desperately flee the core group and attack the Roman legions, but this was understandably not going to work as the Romans soaked up these ill-advised attacks. Crassus then made a decisive move. The year was now 71 BCE and Crassus would lead his army to engage with Spartacus at the Battle of the Silarius River. There are heroic reports of Spartacus making a dash towards Crassus who was observing the battle from higher ground, with Spartacus killing two centurions in his attempt. However, Spartacus was ultimately surrounded by soldiers and killed on the battlefield, and this would symbolically end the Third Servile War, with the slave army finally being defeated once and for all, ending two years of terror. Some slaves attempted to flee from the area, but were ultimately tracked down by the soldiers of another Roman military general called Pompey, who we have also talked about on many occasions during this podcast series already. Both Pompey and Crassus would need to send a propaganda message to the entire Republic to prevent any such slave uprising ever again. The Appian Way 
was a Roman road which led from the Circus Maximus in Rome to the lands of the south and the route between Rome and Capua was lined with 6,000 crucified slaves. The crucifixion would involve the slave being attached to a wooden cross, possibly using nails and then simply leaving them to die slowly. The servile wars were over. So that's Spartacus, the ultimate story of a slave rising up against his masters and uh, also inspiring much in the way of um, visual dramatisations of uh, gladiators and uh, even Spartacus himself has been immortalised in Hollywood movies. So um really was a pleasure to cover that this week and I hope um, that our alternative look at Spartacus was... Uh, was done well with the focus actually on the original battle that started the third servile war so there we go um the story of spartacus thank you so much for listening let's read out some messages then some uh emails received uh, i've got one from rick peterson here who's put hello love the podcast only about 15 episodes in really enjoying it learning an incredible amount. Really enjoy your humility and wonderful amount of knowledge. Uh, Rick Peterson, Brisbane, Australia. I think that's one of the great things is when uh, people email in and I can see that, you know, where in the world that you are and even with everything that's been going on in the world this year, here we are still living in this small world. We're still able to communicate with each other well. Um, George, I haven't got a surname, but um, George has written in saying, um, love the pod, almost caught up, but I was wondering if at the end of every episode, before you go into reviews, maybe you could do like a one or two minute summary of the major themes. I'm often multitasking when I listen, and I imagine that's fairly common. I can sometimes miss elements here and there, plus I think recaps are great in general for a dense 40-ish minute pod you know uh well thanks very much for the message george um yeah do you know i think it probably is um worth considering something like that i think um it is good to sort of lead into things and i think it's you know reminders and summaries are, are all very good in podcasting because otherwise you just end up with a, a meandering monologue which doesn't really um do much for everybody like if you're if you're good at listening you'll be fine if you if you're not so good and you need your attention to be fixed um sometimes it's it is good to have that kind of thing like a summary or a reminder of of what's going on so um i do agree to to a degree and maybe that is something that can be changed going forward so thanks for the message george um, also received a message from Molly Gardner who's put Dear Mr Hasler, I hope you don't mind me writing this but just wanted to say thank you for your amazing podcast I stumbled across it a few months ago and begun from the beginning so I have to confess to being quite a bit behind everyone else but I'm thoroughly enjoying working my way through the episodes and learning so much I cannot begin to imagine the amount of research and careful planning that goes into creating the episodes and I just wanted to thank you again for the tremendous content it has been so lovely to explore new things in lockdown and 
learn new things I would have uh, I would never have normally thank you again and I can't wait to continue listening in the future best Molly Gardner um, thanks Molly that's a very warm message uh, and I did attempt to personally respond to it but um, the email address that you submitted it, it wouldn't allow me to it, it just sort of bounced back so um, sadly I wasn't able to give you a personal response but um, if you're able to send me the, the correct email address um, you know I'd be happy to send you a message Molly but thanks so much for the for the email that's very kind I always get very kind messages from the hot welders from the History of the World podcast community let's read some reviews out while we're on this subject um, let's have a look um, Silky Johnson player hated um, has written in from the United States of America with a review he's put unlike any other podcast this is the best podcast of its type largely because few undertake the daunting task of tracing the modern world from the Big Bang each episode has a ton of information so it can be very dense but Chris keeps it interesting I listen to this while when I'm lifting to keep my brain sharp and find it very relaxing and informative. Uh, I, I guess you mean lifting weights. I'd like a vision of, of you lifting boxes and, and like, you know, a moving house um, or something like that. But um, uh, the daunting time, I'll tell you what, it says from the Big Bang, I didn't start from the Big Bang. Cool, blimey, I'd have been, been here for the rest of my life doing it from the Big Bang. Um, certainly from the, uh, the Chicxulub Crater impact. Uh, which we believe that wiped out the dinosaurs. So we're a long way from there now into the Roman story. But thanks ever so much for the five-star review, Silky Johnson, player hated. Um, another five-star review from Scion91 uh, from right here in Great Britain. Has put, I'm only on volume one so far, but it is coming across as a very well-researched podcast with the information put across in an accessible manner especially considering how complex some of the topics are. It's great for long drives and for monotonous work. I highly recommend this podcast and a little smiley face at the end. So thank you very much, Cyan91. Um, I don't even, I can't remember if I read out this review. It's from Awesome Gruesome, um, who's put, uh, who's put C friend. I've been listening to Chris for, quite some time now and he is an absolute legend to me for taking his time and providing knowledge for people like me I've done recall I've never been described as an absolute legend before so quite humbling uh, hopefully one day I'll be able to use this knowledge to contribute more to this world which is much needed well I know I suppose learning about history does give you an appreciation of the world that you live in let's say um, so you know it can change your perspective uh, let's say, but um, such tremendous um, reviews and, and messages. You, you lot are exceptionally kind. I think it, it shows just how much um, you know warm heartedness there is on this planet of ours. So um, it's it's an absolute pleasure to read these messages out. So thank you. Now, as ever, each week, I, please forgive me for doing this. I always have to do it. Uh, the reason why is because there are some very kind people that deserve recognition. Now, if you want to support the podcast, uh, you can do so. You can make a financial contribution. 
you can sign up for a monthly donation for as little as one dollar a month and these little one dollar a month donations really add up um if you want to donate more bring it on lovely jubbly um otherwise um you can just rate and review the show and that is equally valuable but if you do sign up and make a financial contribution then you become a lifelong member of the history of the world podcast illuminati and um you also uh, qualify for associated benefits which you can see on the on the web page itself so go along to the history of the world podcast.com website and click patreon to find out more and uh, we've got two new members of the history of the world podcast illuminati this week we welcome big slice who's uh joining the history of the world podcast illuminati and gazoo bear g um also another one there to be welcomed so um thank you to you both you're now uh you now have the distinction of being members of the history of the world podcast illuminati so coming up next week what have we got coming up next week well we're going to link up again with the story of the persian lands and uh, it's at this point that the gentleman who solved the Spartacus problem, that being Marcus Licinius Crassus, member of the uh, the first triumvirate, which is the period that we're going to be uh, looking at next week. So we're going to be fast forward into the 50s BCE. And uh, we're going to be looking at the adventures of Marcus Licinius Crassus, who was commissioned to um, to deal with the Parthians um, over in the Persian lands. And we're going to find out how he got on. So next week, we're going to be looking at the Battle of Cary um, between the Romans and the Parthians. So that's going to be extremely interesting. Of course, anything to do with histories. Is, yeah, I'm always going to describe it as extremely interesting, so it doesn't really mean anything, does it? But um, I think it's going to be very interesting, and I'm sure those of you who love your history are going to find it very interesting. A big moment in the in the in the closing years of the Roman Republic, the Battle of Cary, coming next week. Well, that's your lot for another week. I'm going to wrap it up. Uh, next week, the Battle of Cary. We uh, remain in the Roman Republic uh, for now. And uh, until next week, have a jolly good week. And don't forget to be good. Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. You can join our discussion forum and find us on social media support the podcast for as little as one dollar per month by clicking the patreon link email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com the best ones will be read out be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us